Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we are talking about the sci-fi classic Alien. Released on May 25th, 1979, directed by Ridley Scott with a screenplay by Dan O'Brien of Total Recall fame and music by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, This is kind of one of the seminal sci-fi and horror classic movies. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to talk about this one, Matt. It it, it had been a while since I'd seen it, uh, probably a decade since I'd seen it. And uh, during this rewatch, I had several several thoughts that I, you know, now we're looking at it as a more, um, you know, a, a film goer that, that's more discerning, I guess would be the way that I put it. Uh, I picked out some things that I don't think I'd ever noticed before. So um, I'm curious about your overall thoughts on Alien on this rewatch. So it's kind of the opposite for me because I had never seen any of the Alien movies until really a couple months ago when I watched the whole series along with the Predator films with my wife, kind of a movie marathon. And then I rewatched it again uh, for the podcast. And I think that, you know, for me, because I'm, I'm coming at it from, like I watched it very recently, never saw it growing up. Um, it, it fits into one of those classic films for me where I, I identify it as a classic film. So like the first thing is uh, the intro to the movie feels a little slow and methodical. Um, it's got that, <laughs> it's got the the starship coming over the top of the screen in the intro, right? And the space and the ships, they don't look amazing. Um, you know, Star Wars is filmed a couple years before this. And I think it holds up much better. Of course, that's kind of a magical film in terms of special effects. Um, so once the characters come in, though, it really picks up for me. And I totally understand why it's kind of a classic sci-fi horror film. Uh, I think it holds up really well, the movie itself, uh, the story, the characters. It has a, for me, like the horror movies that I really enjoy are the ones that kind of puts normal people in extraordinary circumstances. And I was thinking about this while I was watching it. And in a lot of ways, I... I thought about Alien as a creature feature, like this almost because like the alien monster itself is sort of this animal creature, but it's really not. In a lot of ways, it's almost supernatural where these characters are put into a situation where they are completely out of the water. Uh, This movie struck me more this most recent time I rewatched it as a lot more of kind of cosmic horror of kind of the Lovecraftian where, you know, they see, and I don't quite remember what they call, uh, is the, the navigator who's in the big chair in the crashed ship. I think so. Yeah. The space jockey sometimes space, yeah. he's called, yeah. yeah, he's called that. There's not a really, I don't know if there's an official term, but right. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That has a very cosmic, we're not alone kind of horror vibe to it. Uh, the alien monster, it, it's hard a little bit now because Alien is such an iconic franchise that even though I hadn't seen them until recently, I still knew what, what they were and what they looked like and what they did. Uh, but it's such a, a kind of unusual circumstance. And these people are really put into the situation. And that's I really enjoy that. And you can I can empathize with those characters in it. And so for me, it plays as kind of a nice uh, character piece, especially for Ripley put into this extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance, uh, terrifying circumstance, and how she reacts. And that's just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it is. It's kind of hard to separate, you know, the legacy of the the later Alien films from this film. You know, uh, you know, doing my research for this film, I was surprised. And I think it's, it happens with a lot of films that have this kind of venerable reputation now is that when it came out, it kind of had mixed reviews. Uh, and now it's like set apart as like this is the classic sci-fi horror film, you know. Even Roger and Ebert were kind of uh, Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel were kind of split on on how on how much they liked it, um, and then kind of went back later and said, you know, actually this is in hindsight, you know, this is a great film. And it's interesting you pointed out the thing about the cast, and and that was one thing that I noticed uh, that they had said too about the fact that the cast is older. 
than you'd see in, in a lot of like horror films. And so that adds this, uh, lends this, this level of gravitas to it where you have, you know, people that are in their 40s and 50s. You know, it's not like the stupid little teenagers going, you know, don't go in the room, don't go up the stairs, all that kind of stuff. So it lends this, this level of realism and you're like, well, there's no way that this is going to happen to these people. And, you know, having the character of Ripley and Sigourney Weaver being a relative unknown at the time, being the only one who survives, that's not a thing that you would, you would necessarily think. It turns out, you know, it's kind of revealed that she's throughout the, you know, throughout the series, she's the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you wouldn't see that right away. It's all very um, equal in terms of, of who the characters are. They're all on kind of a level playing field. That's one thing that I noticed uh, right off the bat. Just I'm going to skip to cinematography. I'll come back to my overall thoughts. But one thing I noticed right away was that they're portrayed very, very equal, you know, and they're sitting at a circle, circular table. Uh, or at least the way they're sitting is very circular. So it's very much, and we're all kind of on level playing field. There are ranks and we get to know them a little bit, but they don't act. It's not a very rigid command structure or anything like that. Everyone's pretty much uh, equals. And so they have you know, equal opportunity deaths as well. Uh, one thing that I really noticed this time and I paid special attention to is how much of a slow burn this film is. Like it is very atmospheric and, uh, and it, you know, there's a lot of lingering shots of uh, of the backgrounds, both on the Nostromo and also when they get down to the planet. But the thing that I was shocked by is the, the time signatures that it is lit. And I, I made note it's literally at the 34 minute mark where Kane is attacked by the um, by the facehugger, and the chestburster scene, the infamous chestburster scene, doesn't happen until 56 minutes into the film. It's almost halfway over before that happens. Yeah. How much world building they do before you even get to that point? I just thought I thought that was exceptionally cool. I mean, we talked about we've talked about Star Wars too. How Star Wars is is slow by modern film uh, standards. This film is even slower. Uh, but some things that I noticed again that that I really liked um, that they're very slow, lingering like wake up scene at the beginning. Is that do you know do you know who the first character is who wakes up? Um, do you remember? Is it Kane? It is Kane. Okay. And I was like, the first guy we get to know yeah. is the first guy who dies. And so for me, that was like, I'm going to keep track of who dies and in what order. Uh, because I just thought that's fascinating that they, you know, they have this character. We get to know the longest uh, is, is the first one that dies. And, and John Hurt is phenomenal in this film. I, I think like, we'll get down to it a little bit more, but he's like the best special effect in this film. He sells that chestburster scene so well. So, you know, some of the thoughts that I had about this one is, again, going slow. It's just the, the overarching theme, of it, and not in a bad way, but the monster moves really, really slow, except for the mouth. But the way it walks and creeps up and lowers itself is very slow. It's very deliberate. And you know it's doing that out of a sense. It, it has no fear, mm-hmm. right? It, it is completely unmatched by the characters in this film, it's killing indiscriminately with like no motivation other than the fact that it can. It's just, you know, you mentioned the supernatural aspect of it. And there is a little, I mean, I guess that, that makes sense. Like there is no, there's no motivation for it other than it's just this overpowering evil force. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, I didn't think about the, the time signatures, but that's a good point about how, you know, kind of the, the thing that we think about most with this film is that chest burster moment and it's halfway through the film. Um, I do think though that it does a pretty good job of setting up questions. And I think that a lot of horror in some ways is kind of very close to mystery in terms of genre, um, where a lot of good horror posits a question where something out of the ordinary happens and it's up to the characters to respond to it. And, you know, it starts off when they're all awoken from that, the cryo sleep chamber, and they have no idea why. And what struck me early in the film, as far as uh, dialogue, was was line, where's Earth? Or something to that effect, where they don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's already kind of a horrifying, disorienting feeling uh, that these characters have of something is wrong because they're not where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to wake up, I think, on the outer rim of Earth. So I'm assuming as they enter the solar system or something along those lines. 
and it, they're kind of flying blind for a minute. And, you know, with, with hindsight, we kind of know that uh, the ship was rerouted with the assistance of Ash. But I think that kicks off that kind of horror mystery element in the film that continues onward. One thing I found very interesting, because like I said, you know, I'd watched or I hadn't seen any of the alien films and then watched them all in a row, uh, is that the more modern ones, um, you get something close to answers to where the aliens actually came from, the xenomorphs, and uh, kind of has mixed reactions. And I was thinking about that watching Alien this time. And I think one of the fun parts for me is seeing that space jockey and seeing the kind of semi-humanoid appearance and just having no clue what it was, where it came from, the giant horseshoe spaceship, again, same thing, and then all the eggs. There's so much mystery that kind of sparks your imagination, and that's such a fun aspect of the film. And when you get those answers, sometimes it can feel a little disappointing because it doesn't quite live up to your imagination. And it reminds me of the midichlorians in Star Wars, where the Force is this mysterious force, and it's kind of okay like that. It's kind of okay just being mysterious, right? And I kind of wonder... And there's uh, news that there's probably a new Alien series coming out because I believe Disney owns the rights to Alien now, the Alien franchise. Um, so <laughs> next next on the list in Disney Plus is Aliens. And I kind of wonder, you know, what direction they're going to be taking the whole franchise um, because another interesting aspect to this is this is very much a slow, isolated, I mean, it's almost a cabin in the woods experience for the characters because they're they're cut off in space. Um, you know, is it going to stay that? The next movie in the franchise, Aliens, is much more of an 80s action movie. And so it's like there's a lot of different directions uh, that this franchise could go. And it, I, I do kind of wonder, you know, which direction it's going to take whether the, the future of the franchise is going to stick more to its roots uh, in this movie or not. Yeah, I, I agree with you that I like the things in this movie that you don't know. I think that the mystery is partly what makes this film work, what make, really makes it work. And the one thing that I – and also having context for the, for the later films. But I think that what I noticed this time, what I was really struck by is that, yes, the alien is – the xenomorph – you know, is the most tangible enemy in this film, but the company itself mm -hmm. is the bad guy, right? They're the ones that say, you know, the crew is expendable. It doesn't matter. We just want this weapon, right? And Ash, especially the reveal of him as the android, is as scary as anything else in the film. And even, you know, he wouldn't have to be, I mean, it's, it's like he's like an alien too. It wouldn't even, he doesn't even have to be, synthetic or he could be a human just because they're you know there's characters in fiction that are that way too that are that are human but they're you think a lot of stephen king stories where there's just a random human that's just evil mm -hmm. right and that's a scarier thing that they have these people that would sell each other out you know for profit essentially and so it almost doesn't even matter where the alien comes from because the true evil in this film you know is you know this company that really is only concerned with the bottom line. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic. You're talking about John Hurt's performance, and I think that, um, who's the actor who plays Ash? Ian Holm. Ian Holm, who plays yeah, Ash. Yeah, Bilbo. Yeah, Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> Back to our Hobbit reference. <laughs> is um, fantastic. Yeah. It is a very unsettling scene when he's attacking Ripley and starts to malfunction. Mm -hmm. And the first time I saw it, you know, because it was so recently, I was like, why is he sweating milk? Like I did, I did yeah. not understand what was going on. And it's like, oh, he's an android. Like, oh, okay. Okay. I, I kind of get this. But it was the the sound effects. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether, I know they used some animatronics for the scene when his head was off. Uh, but the scene when he is kind of convulsing still on his legs and he's still fighting some of the crew uh, is was was really fantastic because it looked inhuman and like just watching it I wasn't sure if it was him or if it was an animatronic 
But that's kind of a cool, cool feeling right there. I also loved what you said about uh, the company being kind of the the true evil, the, the true bad guy, if there is one. Not only does that kind of ground the story in something real, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could all come up with horror stories of, you know, workplaces and stuff at some point from our lives. Um, but I think that's one of the, the the great powers of horror movies is to reveal something very human uh, through extraordinary circumstances. And when you are faced with the unnatural or the unexpected or the horrific, uh, people react in different ways and you see kind of all aspects of the human condition, both the, the good, we, you know, we see a lot of heroism and empathy in Ripley. Um, and we see kind of the evil from, from Ash, even though technically he's not human, but it's still a very human performance and character, I think. Yeah, in this case, it's like the xenomorph is just a metaphor, right? It's it's like the, some of the best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't know if you if you're familiar with that show, but you know, it was like here's things that kids would deal with in high school, and we were personifying them as this creature. You know, it's that same kind of thing, and that's why that's why it works, right? Is because even though the situation itself is outlandish, it's really not when you're looking at you know the the interpersonal relationships and and like we like you just mentioned, you know work environment people would have you know work stories where you know the, you know the bottom line was more important than you know than safety or what have you and so you know it's it's a way that this film translates uh in that way and speaking of that i i found it i always find it kind of interesting uh this last year or two watching movies where there's some kind of quarantine or, or something yep because <laughs> uh uh their masks don't look very effective they're not like hooked up to anything they're <laughs> it's like um i just found that really interesting where you know ripley has this um this power over the the three people who get off on lv426 to investigate and she has the power to kind of let them back on the ship or not and she basically says no i'm not going to yep and it for me that's such an interesting character decision because it, there's not really a right answer is there because if she doesn't let him on she's kind of being a jerk and she's kind of possibly you know leaving uh kane to die it likely he would have died in quarantine uh but at the same time you know as the acting officer of the ship th there's more crew members on board that are potentially at risk if she lets it on this unknown uh, at that point pathogen or whatever you know she's not really sure I just find it uh, interesting how those little moments kind of reflect given our modern situation. So, Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's hard not to to immediately go to that when, when you see things, when you hear the word quarantine, and <laughs> you see the masks and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, one of the things, if, are you ready to move to cinematography? Oh, yeah, whatever. Cool. Because um, there's one, uh, a shot that happens fairly um, quickly after that that I thought was, I'm looking for things that are just really just popping off the screen, just really interesting, is when Ripley confronts Ash about this, about because he overrides her. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this weird thing, right, where he's, you know, from the science division and the military division, and, like, there's the command structure is not really clear, which is another thing that's really fascinating, make of that what you will for our current environment, uh, is that the shot is very claustrophobic. And that's like, I think that's one of the big themes of this of this film too, is, is the claustrophobia. But it's shot so close. It's this low angle shot up at Ash. And I don't know if you remember this, but Ash is on the left, Ripley's on the right, and she's barely in the shot. It's like she's almost just in profile, which I thought made some interesting comments about, you know, how much power she actually has, you know, in, in this scene and in this film, you know, where she... Like we said earlier, you know, she's the ranking officer on the ship. She should have been able to say, no, this is done. And this, you know, this movie's 20 minutes long. But because she's kind of, you know, subverted in this way. Uh, and then you have, you know, the camera is telling us, like, this is actually what's happening. Like, they're giving Ash the power and she has very little. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's a really odd looking scene because there's not a lot of headroom for either character. But she's barely in, in the shot at all. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of strikes me because, um, you know, one thing that we've talked about personally is that um, 
going back to kind of our roots, talking about Star Wars just for a moment, how Princess Leia is kind of an awesome character. She's she's a feminine character, but she's incredibly empowered. She has authority. She has agency. Like, she's just an awesome character throughout the movies, right? And I see Ellen Ripley as kind of the Princess Leia of a harder sci-fi uh, movie franchise. And it just kind of, you know, it's it just struck me thinking about uh, Ripley in Command and um, Holdo. Yeah, Adam Holdo. Uh, and if, you know, if those two are not a little similar to each other, and Poe is kind of similar to Ash in that situation of kind of taking things on his own and doing what he thinks is best. And we kind of we kind of know that, you know, Ash has um, ulterior motives from the company. So it's not a perfect right. analogy. Uh, but I just think it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, power being subverted is kind of this theme that is kind of echoed in The Last Jedi from this film that's. 30 years, 40 years older. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you could argue from a gender politics angle. Like, you could, that would be a really interesting paper. I could see someone writing about about gender politics and, you know, compare and contrast those two characters. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if the character Ripley was a man, yeah. like, how would we feel differently about that? Or even if just the situation was reversed and it was Ripley outside and it yep. was Dallas, the actual captain on the inside. Right. And, you know, that brings up another point that, you know, some of the things that I read about this film was that, you know, uh, Dan O'Bannon very clearly wrote genderless characters. And you really can't, it doesn't matter at all. They're they're very, uh, I don't know, they're, they're flexible in that way. They're right? human. It doesn't, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's really the ultimate the thing is like, are, are they human or not? But, you know, the way they interact with each other, there is not, at least in this film. And so that's an interesting point. Like, uh, you know, I don't think that, I think it's intended so that gender politics is not a thing that would happen, yeah. but it's hard not to read that scene as maybe that being a factor. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like that where you're going, like maybe if we put Ripley in the outside and it's, you know, Dallas that has to make that choice and then he's overridden, you know, how different does that scene play out? Right. And I, you know, I, I think you're right because uh, I, I remember that, that to the, uh, at least specifically Ripley's character being written, um, that either a man or a woman could could be cast as that role. Um, but it also speaks to just how well it's written. It's just a good character, just period. Yeah. So a couple other things that I that I really liked uh, with cinematography in, is, in, in, is that in this film, uh, there's a lot of light that doesn't show us anything. Hmm. I don't know if you noticed this, but like the light is used to blind us and like to misdirect so much. It's I think it's a, it's a really fascinating use uh, of lighting in this film. And then like, there's a lot of whites and grays in this film, which, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, in our Jaws episode, how red is very, it's not used very much at all in Jaws unless it, unless it's really important. It is similar thing in this film, you know, we go back to the scene where the chest burster happens, pretty much everybody's kind of in white and gray. And then when it pops, that red is so vibrant and so shocking and just goes everywhere. And it's because you you don't have any muted colors. It's just all white that it just, it looks way worse than it is. Some other things, and then, you know, I, I know you're, you're probably not a big fan of shaky cam, right? I think we've talked about that before. Like, at least not being overused. And this film uses shaky cam, I think, really effectively. Um, I'm thinking specifically near the end of the film uh, as Ripley's making her way back to the shuttle. Like, there's this very immersive first person experience because it's just shaking and that just only adds to and the music there too doing that uh, but only adds to the stress and the tension uh, which i thought was just a brilliant move of just having you know it's like someone's running down the hallway after her almost yeah i i I actually didn't even notice the shaky cam uh but i think it's because it was used appropriately and um i think that when you use it and it resonates with the story that's that's being told it blends into kind of the background of the film and kind of what you said made me think about one of the most egregious examples of this, uh, which you're very familiar with the opening of um, the hunger games movie when it's showing district 12 and it's a bunch of shaky cam and kind of artificial zoom. And it's, it's almost a little disorienting and it, it doesn't work there 
I, I don't think, because that's not an appropriate you know, time for, for that kind of emotion. It's used later on in the film when uh, Katniss is actually in the arena and it makes a lot more sense given Agreed. her circumstances. And this film, I think, uses it really well because it's something that really just blends into uh, the situation, especially at the end when Ripley's trying to escape the ship. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I'd, I'd like to, we'll break that down at some point for sure. Uh, I think that'd be a good example to, to look at where shaky cam works and where, where, where it doesn't. Um, the last, um, thing that I want to talk about, uh, well, that's a couple things, I guess. Uh, it, I thought it was really interesting that, that the opening shot is very much just a pan to the right through space. I thought it was a really, and I don't know if that's in any way a reference to Star Wars. There's a lot of things that this film has in common with Star Wars. And we know it comes kind of in the wake of Star Wars and, and, you know, it's like, we got to kind of capitalize on that. There's a lot of people that worked on Star Wars that also worked on this film, uh, which is interesting and pretty cool. Uh, you have the whole used universe thing uh, as well with this kind of dirty and that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so that pans to the right, which is pretty unique. Uh, but the last thing that I had for for shots and cinematography was the two scary dots. Uh, when when Dallas is in the ventilation shaft, which is a great thing anyway, it's super claustrophobic there. You have that kind of flashing light again where you can kind of barely see what's happening. And they just, the camera just sits on like the screen they're watching, his dot and the aliens dot just getting closer and it shouldn't be scary, but man, it is. They also do a great job in that particular scene. Uh, the entire screen is almost dark for a lot of it where they almost kind of reframe your image. And so it's like, you see Dallas at least a couple moments where he's like in the very center and it's just a dark black screen around him. And I think that's just an effective use where it's like it kind of puts you in that tunnel with it. Definitely. So I would like to talk about the sound. Um, the one thing that I noticed this time, the most uh, impressive thing I thought was that going back to, again, the most iconic scene in this film has got to be the chestburster scene, right? Mm -hmm. When when the, the little alien pops out, there is this incredibly loud heartbeat that you hear. There's no music. You can't hear bully people screaming. Maybe it might be a little bit muffled, but that, that's the primary thing is this heartbeat. And like you almost don't even know that it's there. It's like on the subconscious level. And so the only I think the only reason I picked it up this time is because I'm literally just trying to pull this thing apart, this film that I've, that I've seen so many times. But I thought it was, it was great and just really terrifying that that's what you hear uh, is this heartbeat. Yeah, uh, that's a great pickup. I, I think the thing that stood out most to me was how subtle a lot of the music was uh, during a lot of the film where, you know, you may be heard a little bit, but it was very soft, very in the background. Uh, for me, it seemed like a lot of the music was used as um, a thing to increase the tension, uh, not necessarily during the action. That's that's kind of how it, it felt to me. The, the one that really stood out was the moment when they first kind of see the the spaceship uh, on the planet and you get this kind of mysterious, tense sounding music where it is, this is kind of, it's again, it's kind of a mystery and they're not sure what's going to happen. But then like sometimes when I would expect to hear music, I didn't. <laughs> and I was, I was a little surprised not to hear uh, kind of a score because I think that's, that's a really big part of film and it's it's a big part of modern film, how having this score to kind of guide people's emotions. And in some ways, I almost feel like it's a little bit of uh, trusting the audience, uh, but also kind of trusting the script and trusting that um, almost a lack might be more unsettling than having music there because you don't hear anything. And, or, or all you can hear are the sounds of the ships or Jonesy running around or something like that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, we mentioned earlier that it's Jerry Goldsmith that did the score and he's written some incredibly distinctive and familiar themes. I mean, he's did several Star Trek themes. I'm thinking of like Star Wrath of Khan, Star Trek 2. There's some really um, provocative and great leitmotifs in that one. The Rambo films, I mean, you hear Rambo's theme through the, his first three Rambo films he did. And I can just think of different themes that he's done. And I can still hear them right now. But with this film, there's not that I could tell. Was there any leitmotif 
the film, the, the music's very sparingly used, like you mentioned. Uh, again, just kind of for atmospherics, it's a kind of a, a very restrained Jerry Goldsmith score. Uh, but there was one thing that I liked that he didn't. He did one thing that I really liked. We did lots of things I liked, but one thing that I liked uh, that he did was when Parker died. And I don't know if you caught this one, but listen for it again. When Parker dies, uh, there's almost like a play on the psycho riff. It zooms in on the alien's face, and you see the, you know, the extension of the mouth come out. And there is, it's great. I mean, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it kind of goes, moves, escalates to like this crescendo, and then there's a little play on the psycho, uh, the psycho theme with you know the shower scene, which I thought was a cool little moment. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, oh, just the last thing I was going to mention was when the, when they're on the planet. Um, again, very sparingly. Uh, there's some breathing sounds when they enter the ship and no dialogue for the longest time. All you hear is just Dallas and Kane. Uh, and is Lambert? It must be Lambert out there as yeah. well. Uh, they, that are breathing. And that's all you hear, which again, it's it's creepy. Like why would, like if it was me on that planet, I'd be talking the whole time because I'd be nervous. But it's really restrained and it's just the breathing, which I, it's pretty immersive. I think. Mm-hmm. So just to jump into kind of performances, which we've already touched on a little bit, um, I think they are pretty great across the board. Um, the one line, my favorite line is um, when Ripley is talking to Ash after they kind of turn him back on after taking his head off. Um, the last line that he says, uh, which is, I think, kind of the perfect horror movie line Um Ash says, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. And it's it's such it's such just kind of a a hopeless statement wrapped in pleasantries mm-hmm. that it's a great middle finger to the crew where Ash really and rightfully does not give them much hope of survival. Yeah. Um but I think that's that to me is just the best line and and like I said, uh, Ripley is amazing. Um, the rest of the crew, I think, do a, a, a good job. Uh, I think Ripley shines the brightest. Um, but the two the two mechanical people. Yeah, Parker and Brett. Parker and Brett uh, have a nice little chemistry with each other, kind of playing mm-hmm. off each other. So I enjoy that. Uh, Dallas is pretty good as the captain. And he has a couple moments with... Um, with Ripley that are that are really good, but uh, Ash, Ash and Ripley, I think, are the two. Um, you can tell immediately that Ripley suspects Ash, and it's fun to see that kind of play in through like the movie, and then kind of pay off with him is reveal as being an android. Yeah, no, I, I agree with with everything you said. I, I love Parker and Brett. They could almost have like their own little. There's kind of like a Lauren Hardy aspect to them yeah. a little bit. Um, I just seen earlier in the film where uh, right they land, the landing craft is is on LV four twenty six and you know it's broken and they have to fix it and they're talking to each other and one of them says you know it's going to be seventeen hours and so then I think it's uh, uh, Parker's and like yeah, it's going to be at least twenty five hours so like they're always like over promising or under promising and and over performing like they're always kind of overselling what it is yeah there's a scene where you know where, uh, where Ripley confronts them and then like they took the steams were on really loud and they're talking super loud and like, Oh, I can't hear you. And then she leaves and she to turn it off, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, which is great. I'm like, and again, you kind of identify with these characters. Like we've all known people like that, or they're kind of funny and you feel bad for them. Um, when, when they die, we, we, we mentioned John Hurt. He just amazing. Again, I just said, he's the best special effect in the chestburster scene. Him just flopping around, uh, sells it. You know, he's just choking and, and he's right there. I mean, it's, it feels real. Uh, something that's great about that scene that I read uh, is that uh, Veronica Cartwright, plays Lambert, did not know what was going to happen. And so, like, the horror on her face is legitimate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think she's great in this at all, you know, in this movie, period. If anybody's melodramatic, it's her. But, like, in any in, in the situation, like, I think it's pretty legitimate that's how it's warranted would act. yeah it's absolutely warranted uh but she freaks out very effectively uh i had i love that line that you pointed out from ash about you know i sympathize the one i had from him was 
that it's the perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Yeah. Yep. And then they say, you admire it. And he says, I admire its purity. Where he's, you know, <laughs> he's emotionless yep. in that regard. It's just, you know, the fact is this thing's amazing and you are going to die because it's more impressive than you are. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of notes about uh, costumes. Um, going back to the Star Wars connection, um, John Malo, who did the uh, the costumes in Star Wars and won an Academy Award for that, did the the final spacesuits, which I thought were fascinating in this one. The, the note I had for this one was how huge the glass bubble is. It just feels oversized to me, uh, which is, you know, it's perfectly shaped for a face hugger to come launching out of the egg onto your face it's like you can see a lot but it also makes it really easy for that to happen if you had a smaller uh a smaller window there then maybe you know the story goes a little differently i thought that was an interesting uh design choice yeah i, I quite liked uh the suits actually um i think it's i don't know for me it's just different enough uh to kind of fit the unidentified future time that this is in um, uh, but everything is very worn. Everything's very used. It, for me, it has the kind of old classic sci-fi look to a lot of things where when the crew is sitting in the shuttle to go land on the ship, there's lights all, all around them and they're all blinking, but for no apparent reason. And, uh, the mother chamber, whatever they want to call it, right. Yeah. Uh, with the smart computer or, you know, whatever it's supposed to be, um, is just like pure lights, but <laughs> it's like, I think there's text on the walls and stuff, but it's almost unintelligible because there's so many blinking lights. Um, and it, it just kind of strikes me as that, well, let's just throw lights at it. Uh, and, and same with some of the sound effects too, where it's like, well, you know, this is a sci-fi movie and we can kind of make up whatever we want and people roll with it and it all works. Um, but it, it, it just uh, strikes me as that kind of, well, the future is going to have a lot of lights and buttons, so we're going to go with that. <laughs> and, you know, the thing that always struck me as odd is, and I'm assuming they're the autopilots, like it looks like almost like there's mannequins sitting in the chairs, the helmets on. Yeah. I just thought that was always a weird. Yeah. Uh, but cool choice, uh, you know, design choice that almost looked like, are those people in there? What's What's going on there? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I also had the the little room for interacting with Mother. It's like this pod. It reminded me a little bit of like Vader's meditation chamber, tiny bit, just based on the on the the shape. But it's interesting that they go into this private little room to talk to Mother. Um, and then you <laughs> yeah. have that great scene where Ripley's in there and and you know basically gets you know crew's expendable. Yep. There's nothing you can do about it. This is what we're Which doing. Which is also a horrifying element. Yeah. You know, and we should uh, absolutely talk about. You know, Geiger, H.R. Geiger, who designs the alien and the ship and all the, you know, all the accompanying artifacts with that and just how creepy that is. And then I know that, the, you know, there was even some controversy about, like, we can't put this in a film. <laughs> people are going to have nightmares. We can't do that. But, like, you know, we people use the word, and we do too, you know, iconic far too much. But it is. Like, it is such an amazing design. You know, one thing I had... Uh, one I noticed was, you know, a guy in a suit should not be scary, ever. But there's a guy in a suit, and it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that is the way that it's not shown. I mean, that's yeah. one of the great things. Again, this film is very restrained. We talked about the music being restrained. This is kind of just going back to cinematography a little bit, is, you know, we really don't see the alien in its entirety until the very end. Like, pretty much when you see it outside the ship, mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. It's just, you know, a shot of the head here, shot of the tail here. Um, and, you know, that absolutely works because it's so minimal. You fill in the gaps, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in your own imagination. And uh, along with that, the face hugger is a terrifying design, um, you know, claustrophobic, where it is quite literally smothering, but it just looks like a horrific thing to kind of go through. Uh, where it is wrapped over Kane's face. Uh, and, you know, when they try and take it off, it tightens its tail around his neck. Yep. Uh, it, it, you know, it's just, it just doesn't look fun. And <laughs> what I mean by that is like, 
it's it's just this experience where you could if you imagine yourself being in that situation you kind of shudder a little bit like you don't want any part of it and i think that's that's really good design for horror film yeah you know and, and a lot of metaphor with that you know if you get into it there's a lot of you know like sexual assault i mean yep. i know we're we're a pg show but you know not to get too deep into that but there are you know hintings at that that if you want to if you want to do this 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 movie is ripe for you know writing essays and and something like that and doing film analysis when you can go all kinds of different ways mm-hmm. about what's you know what's happening with about Kane being impregnated and then bursting out in this all these you know fears irrational or not um that happen i mean this is it ta- this film taps into some psychological things in ways that few films few films do absolutely but yeah, ultimately, it's just really creepy <laughs> and really effective. Uh, yeah, I had, you know, those eggs too. Even just the eggs, like just with the light, you know, and I, I heard that's really Scott's hand in there, which is kind of funny. Um, but like just that, you know, shining the light behind something and seeing something move, you know, very restrained. You don't really get to see. And you know what else you don't get to see is that you, we get to see the, the facehugger launch onto Kane's face right onto his helmet and then it cuts away did yeah. you notice that this time like yeah the next thing you see is like hey let us in yeah you don't actually see it not really yeah um a lot of that the film is very restrained i thought like did i skip something is there something wrong with my dvd uh, that's just, you know this these choices to give you just the bare minimum yeah. just enough yeah well again it, it comes back to for me to kind of the mystery uh, but also, I think brilliantly, it puts us in uh, Ripley's shoes when she's trying to decide whether you know whether to let them on the ship or not. Because you know, if it's just like some random animal, for example, if it were like a bear attack, you know, and he got hurt, yeah, let him on, get him in the med bay, all that kind of stuff. But we don't know. We don't know what is happening to him. And so I think a lot of people, you know, it's hard to guess, but I think people may have been very sympathetic towards Kane and the crew uh, who went out on LV-426 uh, because they're like, yeah, let him on the ship. And Ripley doesn't. And it turns out to be that's the correct decision to make. But we can't know that, you know. So I think there's that element of mystery and suspense and kind of putting the audience in the character's shoes that I think is really effective storytelling. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great point. Like, we have very little information and neither does she. And so that, again, you can, you know, how, how would the film be different if we had seen that? Would we be like, no, don't open the door? <laughs> yeah, I right. think we would have. Right. Or at right least now we're just like, that guy's hurt. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, speaking of, uh, again, going, it's still, still on set design, the, 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 the space jockey. The thing I always forget uh, with this is that there's actually a, ch- a chest burster has happened to this to this character. Mm. It's like, guys, um, that's pretty big foreshadowing for what might be happening. <laughs> and I know, like, they're basically in this impossible situation. Like, they yeah. don't even want to be here. Right. Uh, but it's like, you know, the filmmakers are telling us something very violent is going to happen. Yeah. And I think... I think that's that's great because it's kind of a horror trope where you're yelling and we talked about this earlier, where you're yelling at the teenagers, like, don't go off into the woods by yourself. Don't split the, the group up. Like, you know, don't be an idiot. And these people aren't like, no, this ship is completely it's derelict. It's abandoned. There's no signs of life whatsoever until they're already in the ship. Um, and even the chestburster on the space jockey. That is definitely foreshadowing, but it's like they don't know that yet, you know, and for all they know, maybe he was, you know, shot through the back or so, you know, there's 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 mystery there. They, they're they not sure. I, I don't classify it as like stupidity uh, where it's like they're just being ignorant or stupid. And I think that's great when the characters are acting rationally, you know, as you know, with the information that they have. But they still stumble into danger. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just checking my notes here for how how people die, and I don't think there's anything that's really stupid. I mean, you have you know we talked about how Kane dies, Brett dies while he's chasing down the cat, 
chasing down the cat, but arguably you know, like you need to have, a little stupid. But, but. sure, but but they're also like the only way they have the only way they have to track the alien is with motion sensor, right? And so like you got to eliminate that. That's the way I read it. Like you got to eliminate the possibility that it's the cat. Yes, right. So you take care of that, and then you have this great shot of like it shed its skin. Right. Like, oh my gosh, that's creepy. I mean. Dallas, we can you know, like he's going after it. Like we got to do something about but it. But he's also got like a weapon. Like he's not right unprepared. He's not being an idiot. Right. They're, they're tracking. It's you know, risky, they're, they're but not it. stupid. Sure. And then uh, let's see. Well, Ash dies, but that's different. That's because that's <laughs> different, right? Uh, and then you have you know Parker and Lambert, and they're ambushed. Yeah, looking for coolant for the shuttle. Like it's time to go. We we can't leave though until we have this stuff. Yeah. And then. You know, he's just in there waiting for him. Right. And so there, you're right. There isn't any, well, you know what? I'm going to go outside in the, you know, in the shed. And no, there's none of that. Like, that's what's scary. Like, they, what, what, what could they have done differently? Yeah. Any closing thoughts? Um, I think that, uh, first off, the film absolutely holds up. That's my biggest takeaway. The only thing for me that doesn't hold up is the the final explosion of the Nostromo. It's really cheesy. <laughs> and it happens like three times. Like if it would have just gone once, I'd have like, I'm okay with it. But like they lingered on it. They're like, here's a shot we're really proud of. And we're going to just let that, you know, we're going to let that kind of marinate. And yeah. Hope you, hope you, hope you like it. Yeah. Um, I, I did not. That was the <laughs> one thing that <laughs> kind of took me out of the film. Well, you know, we've talked about the fact that uh, it feels real. You know, the, there's a, there's so much realism to this film that only adds to the horror, the ages of the characters, those mm -hmm. kind of things. We just mentioned that, you know, there's really nothing else they could have done. Um, they didn't make stupid choices. They were just in an impossible situation. Uh, I love the fact that there is, and I know this was a late addition, that there's the final reveal of the alien on the shuttlecraft. Yeah. We didn't really talk about that. That you're like, we, we finally made it and it's going to be over. And like, that could have been it. But you get one more reveal of the alien on the ship that's such a great scene because you relax mm -hmm. and then it's like oh my gosh no it's not over and again you have a guy in a suit it shouldn't <laughs> be scary but it is uh and you know it's not surprising this film won the academy award for best visual visual effects in 1980 uh nominated for best art direction uh we talked about you know the used universe and how this ship even though you know, while you're on the ship, and this whole movie is, is we didn't mention this, but it's, there's nothing on location. It's all soundstage. Because most of it's, you know, it's either on one ship or another. Right. Which absolutely lends to the claustrophobia that, you know, you're only in this confined space. Um, but you spend so much time on this fake environment that feels real. Mm -hmm. So, wow, I don't know what it lost to, but it was amazing. <laughs> so for me, just a couple final thoughts. Um, I think Ridley really plays with this idea of tension and release, uh, which is really important where, you know, they, they ratchet up the tension and then there's a bit of a release, ratchet up the tension, bit of a release, whether that's, you know, the catharsis of finding safety, uh, finding other people or the release of that character dying, you know, whatever it is, there's an up and down kind of roller coaster feeling, which is kind of perfectly, bow tied right at the end when Ripley sees the alien still on the shuttle when she's leaving uh, with one final kind of drop as it were of the release when she's finally free. Um, this movie kind of reminded me of a much more horrific Ghostbusters in the sense that Ghostbusters is a film about a bunch of guys who are Ghostbusters, but that's just their job, Right. It's just what they do. And, you know, on the course of their job, they run into some pretty scary stuff. Now it's played for a comedy. But in this movie, it's like you have the older cast. Most of their conversation is kind of about the job, right? This is a bunch of space truckers who are just out in space doing their thing. They, you know, and then there's an accident on the side of the road and they're sucked into something else. And they're just trying to do their best to deal with it. And I think that really lends to a connection with the characters is that they're not these super soldiers, which kind of happens in some of the later film. Uh, but it's like, these are just ordinary people. It could be you or me. 
And I think that's a really, really good note to hit for this kind of horror film. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I'm glad you brought up, you know, the space trucker angle, which is, I mean, that's really what, they are, what this is. This is just some regular folks. There's no weapons yep. on board. Like they have to, you know, jerry-rig everything that they do. Yep. And they're completely outmatched by this xenomorph that has acid for blood, which we didn't talk about, which I mean, what a great guy. Like we can't even blow it up. We have to, yeah. you know. You got to figure electric, something else out. Something else out. Um, and, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the next film, but what just sparked my mind where there was, you know, we're thinking, well, if we had an army of guys, then we'd probably be okay. And then again, you're not, which just speaks to the, the greatness of the second film. Yeah. Um, but this film Alien. If you haven't seen it in a long time, go back and watch it because yep. it's phenomenal. And Revisit don't worry it. about if you haven't, you know, you don't want to watch Alien versus Predator or the 17 other movies that are connected to this at this point because there's a lot. This film stands alone just fine. It is, you just watch this film, enjoy just this film. Uh, I highly recommend. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook or email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps get the word out about the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies.